0: up to. So we did the section directly before this uh, last week. Let's come before God in prayer as we look to his word together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who not only is all powerful to create, but you're a God who reveals yourself to your creation, that you desire to be known. And Lord, we know What a joy it is to know you but also recognise that we don't deserve to know you and that we can only know you through what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf bearing the full punishment for our sin on the cross of Calvary. Lord, we thank you that your word gives life your word is given to, to make us complete and equipped for every good work and so we ask that by the same spirit that inspired the author's might be at work in me and in all of us to respond faithfully uh, to the text this morning. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I get bored. I get bored with fantastic and exciting things. And you know what? I reckon you do. What do I mean? Now, we become familiar with things which were once seems so outstanding and amazing. Like, imagine if you were there when the Wright brothers had the first ever flight, powered flight, you were like, man, look, we're flying, people are flying, they're getting off the air. They flew for 59 seconds, 260 metres, at a height of three metres, but it was the first time and it would have been so exciting to be there, now, those who are mathematical, mathematically minded are thinking, some athletes could run that in that time. Even Tiger Air can go better than that, except for the fact they're about to come to an end. <laughs> what about when Noah is called to build an ark? Never seen a boat, likely never seen rain, yet he builds it. And then when the rains come, imagine all of his family just looking, going, Look at this. Boats that fit animals. Or imagine your grandparents with an iPhone. Now, I don't mean uh, not grandparents with an iPhone, the kids ringing me up asking me how to use it. Imagine your grandparents as a child. With an iPhone. So back in the day when their concept of a phone was something connected to a wall, that you rang up an operator who put some wires together to connect your phone call through to another person and they get this thing that does all this stuff? There are so many things that just seem so ridiculously impossible at the time. And then when they happen, you're like, wow. imagine if I brought out one of the original car or bag phones, the mobile phones that came like in a like its own briefcase that you carried around, you're like pfft. yet people at the time were so excited about it. We get bored. We become familiar with things. And I think also we have a tendency towards interpreting our life and what's exciting what is to be expected in terms of what we can rationalise, what we can see, how it works. In other words, if we can't see how something can be done, we presume it probably can't do. I'm sure back in the 1500s, the idea of a cordless phone or a mobile phone would have seemed ridiculous. Now, as we've gone through 1 Samuel, we've seen some failed priests We've also seen the rise of Samuel from a young boy to a man that God was deeply at work with him. And there's also the man who brought about the monarchy in Israel as the people had asked for a king who would judge them like all of the other nations and who would go out and fight their battles for them. And even before Saul is appointed as king, this is what God had to say of him. He said, He will save my people from the hand of the Philistines for I have seen my people... Because their cry has come to me. God says, this king, before he's even appointed, this Saul is going to save the people from the Philistines. Yet last week, we saw Saul had gathered together a bit of an army. He had 3,000 of them. There was a little bit of a victory at Geba. not, Not under Saul, but under his son, Jonathan. And the people were pumped. They're like... We are going to nail these Philistines. We have become a stench in their nose. I love that phrase. Until they actually see the Philistines. They saw the Philistines with 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand of the seashore in multitude. And keep in mind, amongst the Israelites... The only people who actually have swords or anything like that are Saul and Jonathan. And at the time, they had 3,000 prepared for this battle. There was panic. They go from thinking, man, we are unconquerable, to, oh, maybe we're not. Matter of fact, they start running away like little children, hiding in rocks and caves. Saul starts to panic. He's only got 600 men left. And he realises, my only help is God. So, you no, know, normally you'd seek God's favour through a sacrifice. It's like, oh, but Samuel's just not coming. So Saul thinks, I'll have a crack, I can do this stuff. To which he's rebuked from Samuel for that and told that for, as a result, he would not have a kingdom forever. But today we see this day of battle. Now, we've already had a glimpse of the Philistines. They were quite a scary army. The numbers of them, the multitudes, the weaponry, the chariots. Israel, well, Saul's got 600 guys hiding in a cave with him. Saul being the only one who actually has a weapon. And Jonathan also does too. Now, let's think about the statistics here. What's what's the odds of an Israelite victory? 600 men, one of them's got a sword, two of them's got a sword, against the Philistines. If you're a betting person, no one's putting money on that. No? But where does this fit in with God's claim? This man, Saul, will save our people from the Philistines. We learn a lot about faith in this chapter. Faith in what? In 1 to 7? When faith is rightly placed in 8 to 15 and living by faith not sight in 16 to 23. Faith in what? Well, you need to remember it's the exact same situation facing Jonathan as is the exact same situation that Saul sees. Saul sees a multitude of Philistines, superior weaponry, odds statistically it's just not going to happen at all. So Saul's hiding in a cave with 600 men around him. Jonathan sees the the exact same ridiculously impossible odds, turns to his armour bearer and says, let's go over to the Philistines. You and me, two of us, let's go go over to them. But let's not tell that about it. Let's keep it a little secret to ourselves, because as we see, nobody... Other than Jonathan and his armour bearer seem to be aware of what their plan is. Two men, Jonathan and an armour bearer against this massive army of Philistines. No one knows. It's understandable why. Can you imagine if Jonathan said to Saul, Me and my mate, we're going to go over there? You know what the answer is going to be. I remember when I was younger, I'd broken my ankle, I'd just joined a new church, and the young adults group was going on a ski weekend. I've never actually skied before, so I thought I'd go for snowboarding. I think it was about three weeks after I'd had the plaster off my leg, and I thought, I'm going to tell mum that I'm doing this after I come back, not beforehand, because you know what the answer's going to be. While Jonathan's approaching the Philistines, This massive army. What's Saul doing? Hiding in a cave. He's got his 600 men, the ones that at least didn't flee and desert and hide in little crevices and rocks. And he's got a priest, a hydra, who it tells us is Phinehas' grandson. Remember Phinehas? Hophni and Phinehas back from the early chapters those despicable priests that were despising the means of grace that God had given and telling worshippers they couldn't worship rightly just taking whatever they could for themselves sleeping with the women that served in the tabernacle but at least it's good that Saul's in the presence of a man of God who hopefully will be guiding him and advising him from a godly perspective if Saul will listen. I don't think Saul was a big fan of Samuel's input last week. But the terrain to which Jonathan and his friend are heading along, it's not flat. Talks about in the text of passes and crags. It's just... Whoops. And there's a picture of that area of, of mishmash. So you can see how you could actually approach an enemy and not be seen along the way. Jonathan's not scared of being seen. Matter of fact, he suggests it. Verse 6, Jonathan says to his armor bearer, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Let's ponder that for a moment. He knows the exact same circumstances that Saul knows. Saul's fear, hiding in a cave with 600 men around him and he have got two of them, he's like you know what? It could be that God wants to defeat them. And he sees the same hindrances that Saul sees and says God doesn't matter. If God's in control, it doesn't matter if there's how many of us there are, what weaponry we do or we don't have. When he says it may be that the Lord will work for us He's not doubting to any extent God's ability to save. He's just questioning whether or not it is God's will to save on this occasion. It's quite a striking comparison to Saul. He only sees the hindrances and he panics. Jonathan sees the same hindrances and says, they're not a hindrance to my God. If he wants to save, he will save, regardless of numbers, regardless of weaponry. Put yourself in the armour bearer's boots. Jonathan just said, let's go over to these guys. Would you be excited? Which is like, woohoo, let's go. Either they're both psychopaths and that's not the option I'm going for or the Lord is leading Jonathan and his armour bearer recognises that. Because the armor bearer says, do everything that's in your heart. You wouldn't do that just looking at the evidence before you and think, yeah, this is a great idea. Let's go over to these guys. He recognized the Lord had led Jonathan to this position. He's like, if God is in this, then go with it. Very similar to the word that Samuel spoke to Saul back in chapter 10. He said, when the spirit comes upon you, do everything that's in your heart. It's like if God is leading you, don't resist it. Even though it looks against all odds, walk in that truth, he says. Jonathan recognises it could be the Lord's will to save them, but how will he know? Well, We'll have a look at that in verse 8 to 15, when faith is rightly placed. Well, Jonathan has a plan. Now, I'm going to presume it's a God-given plan. It's quite a simple one. The plan is, Jonathan and the armor-bearer will present themselves before the Philistines. If the Philistines say, you wait and we'll come over to you, we'll take that as a sign from God that, that we're not to go ahead. Or the second option, if the Philistines say, come over to us, then we will believe that God has given them into our hands. That's the means by which Jonathan has discerned if God is really giving the Philistines into their hands. It's not too dissimilar to the situation with Gideon, is it? Back in Judges chapter 6. They were going against the Midianites, a massive army, and God had brought down that army down to only 300 people. And even though God had said specifically to Gideon I am going to defeat them Gideon's like can you give us a little sign how about if I get this little fleecy thing put it out in the grass overnight and if there's dew on the fleece but not the grass then I'll believe you and being a good everyday doubting guy it happens and he's like nah God I see the, I see the number differences can you do something else we'll do it the other way around Jew on the grass, not on the fleece. And eventually did it. They went to war and they won. It's a bold faith-driven move on behalf of Jonathan and his friend to to acknowledge that if they say, come on over to us, we're going to go. But it seems like a total joke to the Philistines. Look at the way they just taunt them. Oh, look, Some of the Hebrew kids have crawled out from underneath the rocks. Come on over, we'll show you a thing. Which is such a nondescript phrase, but it's used now three times in the book of 1 Samuel to describe a major catastrophic thing. They're like, you come over here boys, we're going to teach you a lesson. We'll give you a dead set whooping. The same evidence that led the Philistines to think, we're unconquerable. Look, there's two of them and we've got all of these guys and all this stuff. It's the same evidence before Jonathan, yet Jonathan has a sign and the leading of God. He says, you know what? I see the odds are terrible, but I'm going to trust God's leading and God's promises over anything I can see with my eyes. And so he acts on that. He defies rational fear And walks in the promise of God. And two men end up defeating twenty Philistines in the space of half an acre. That's pretty good Hollywood material, isn't it? That's that. Two guys, you think, super warrior. But unlike a Hollywood story, this is not a focus on a particular warrior or a fighter. It is very clear the one who's winning the victory is the Lord himself. Not only was there the sign given to Jonathan before the combat, even afterwards, it says in verse 15, there was panic in the camp, in the field, and among all of the people. The garrison, even the raiders, that's the elite fighters, trembled. The earthquake and it became a very great panic. So the Philistines from going from thinking, we are unshakable. We are going to make a mockery of these kids to panic, trembling. And even as the Lord sends panic and confusion, we've seen a number of times in the Old Testament when the Lord fights against a nation, often accompanied by earthquakes and thunder. Jonathan was never so foolish to think that, yeah, I'm a pretty good fighter, I can take on these Philistines. But he did believe that the Lord could... Work through few or through many. Now all of this has happened outside of the knowledge of Saul, well, at least until now, living by faith, not by sight, verses six to 23. Now some of Saul's watchmen, they can see there's something going on. There's a dispersion happening amongst the Philistines literally translated a phrase which means a melting away from going from strength to weakness. And so they think, we better better tell Saul about this. So they report it back to Saul, and he knows something. When armies disperse, it's for one reason. It happens because there is a threat. So he knows there's a threat, but he's like, who is the threat? And the solution is to let's count our men, see who's gone out from us. He realises someone's gone out. Who could it be? When they discover it's Jonathan, his own son, and his armour bearer, he says to Ahijah the priest, "Go and get the ark." Now, if you've been coming along with us through First Samuel, you'll think, "Oh, don't do this whole ark thing again." In earlier chapters, they brought it out into battle, thinking somehow it's going to bring them like as a good luck charm. But I don't think that's what Saul's doing on this occasion. I think Saul is genuinely recognising and wanting to hear counsel from the Lord and through his priest Ahijah. So he wants both the ark and the priest around him. A conversation takes place. Presumably the priest is advising and seeking the Lord on behalf of the nation of Israel. Well, at least for a little while until Saul can see with his own eyes that there is a greater commotion going on and he thinks, ripper, we are winning. So he says to the priest, withdraw your hand. Withdraw your hand? What's he doing with his hand? Well, it was common for a a priest when they were seeking guidance from the Lord and communicating guidance from the Lord, they would place their hand in their tunic. So what Saul is seeing, he's seeing that the Israelites are starting to have a great victory and so he's like, I don't need to hear from God anymore. We've got this under control. Off we go. Take your hand out. Stop talking. We're going. Like he was pretty keen to hear from God when he was unsure about what was going on, when he was concerned. But the moment that he thinks that things are going well for the nation of Israel... He doesn't care in the least about hearing from God. You might think it's fickle. But I think if we search our heart, we'd find that we actually do it a little bit more often than we'd like to. We're pretty good at seeking God in times of despair and trouble. But when things start to work their way out, sadly, sometimes we're also pretty good when we think things are under control of starting to leave God out of it. But before we pick on Saul, the rest of the people aren't much better. Now as the Lord is defeating the Philistines in battle, sending them into confusion, they're turning on and actually fighting against one another. Even those who defected off to the cave start start to see what's going on. They're like, hey, Israel's out in front, let's get on board, let's get involved. For a moment there, they didn't even want to be involved with their leader. Now they're like, let's get out there because it's Everyone wants to be a part of the winning team. But there's nothing brave or heroic about turning up to a battle that the Lord is winning on your behalf. It doesn't require the slightest bit of faith at all. That's just living by sight. You weighing it up with your own eyes and saying, we're winning, let's get on board. The Bible says God's righteous ones will live by faith, not by sight. To live a life that, where we're reacting to the good and the bad and our own selves going up and down, fluctuating with that, that doesn't require any faith at all. Anybody can do that. We don't want to be a people who just celebrate victories that the Lord has done despite us nor do we want to be a people who are overwhelmed with panic when we can't see exactly how God's gospel and how hope will find a way. Rather, we'd rather be more like Jonathan, who believed that God could, despite what we see. And I think I've restated for our own benefit who defeated the Philistines in that last verse. So the Lord saved Israel that day. Not Jonathan, not the Israelites. The Lord saved Israel that day. And the battle passed beyond Beth Avon. Say so what? Well, I've titled the same sermon Faith in Action. There's words in that that are redundant. Inaction doesn't need to be there. Because when you look through the book of James, faith that doesn't have action with it doesn't exist. It's not faith, it's dead, he says. Or you could put it simply this way. A faith that does not transform your life is at best a loosely held opinion. Hear that? A faith that does not transform your life is at best a loosely held opinion. Now, I'm not going to say by way of application that maybe one day Australia will be in a war against another country. Maybe God might call you to go to confront those people and and decide what to do about that. That's very unlikely. But I do know with absolute certainty that you and I, on a daily basis, face situations that test our faith, that will test our ability to trust God at his word. Situations which, to the eye, might seem like there's no obvious source of hope. There's no good outcome possible. No solution in sight. The type of situations or trials that James says, consider them pure joy. Now let me tell you, no one likes hearing that verse in the middle of it. There's nothing more more encouraging than going through the worst day of your life and someone's put your arms around you when it was socially acceptable to do so and says, consider it all joy, brother. And it's not joy because they're enjoyable experiences. Consider it joy because they are an opportunity that God allows to grow your faith. Now, I'll admit for myself that It's been a while, but when is the last time in the middle of trial you've actually stopped and thanked and praised God for a trial that's come into your life because it is giving you an opportunity to grow in your faith? Because the Christians, we should desire to grow, shouldn't we? And God is saying, in your trials, here is an opportunity to grow. Anyone can let trials drag them down. Anyone can just respond to what they do and fluctuate up and down. That doesn't require faith. You don't need faith to respond to what's clearly seen. But, brothers and sisters, every single trial is an opportunity to grow and thrive. In fact, I'll go so far to say that a trial can only drag you down if you choose to live by sight and not by faith. I want us to consider something else that James says in that chapter. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So if you follow the logic trials test the quality of your faith. They reveal to you something about the quality of your faith. They reveal to others around you who see how you respond. And they produce steadfastness. And that steadfastness is designed to produce maturity and growth. That you might be complete and lacking nothing. So he says in verse 4... Let steadfastness, give steadfastness permission to do what it was designed to do. He says, let it, that's what steadfastness will do. Clinging to the Lord and his promises will lead to growth. Let it do what it's supposed to do. Don't go from trusting God for a while and think, Man, three months have passed and I still can't visually see how there is hope, how there is goodness in this situation. Says, no, don't give up. Let steadfastness do its and have its full effect. And don't do it alone. We belong to a body. We're called not to neglect meeting together. We're called to, to minister to one another, to build one another up. Jonathan had his armor bearer. bearer who recognised that God was doing a thing in Jonathan, he says, do everything that's in your heart. He encouraged him in that direction. So spur one another on. Rejoice and praise in the good times, yes. But encourage one another forward to see the goodness and tell each other to keep going, to let steadfastness have its full effect. Thank God for the hardships. Thank God for the opportunities to grow in them. Don't let your trials slow you. Let them grow you. We said at the beginning we very easily get excited. We start with a sense of amazement and awe about something and then over time it becomes familiar and we lose something of that enthusiasm and that awe. Don't lose your sense of awe of God do not think of God as something common or mundane. The Almighty, the one who has all power and authority, the one who created everything you've ever seen just by speaking. Who has made himself known to you. His very own son has died on a cross for you. That you are his child, you are co-heirs with Jesus Christ and whom Jesus prayed God, you love those who believe in accordance to the word them just as much as you love me, your son. Because when you rightly recognise who you belong to, you're not going to go back to the old dim-witted what you visually can see, our dim-witted wisdom again. Don't let your trials slow you. Let them grow you. Endure Cling tightly to the promises of God and his character and let steadfastness have its full effect. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are 100% dependable. There is never anything that you have declared that cannot be trusted. Nor is there any situation that is outside of your control because you have all power and all authority. Lord, we recognise there will be always times where, to the eye, to our rational thinking, there looks like no good outcome at all. But we know that you are able and we know that even in the middle of that uncertainty... You are working in us something which is an opportunity for our great spiritual growth and blessing. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be faithful, that our faithfulness would bear witness and encourage one another in the body, but also to those who don't yet know you, that they might know a solid, firm faith in the almighty God. We pray that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.